Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rish Desai. Today, I'm happy to welcome Suzanne Peek, president of the National Malice Foundation, so we can learn more about this rare disorder. Median arcuate ligament syndrome results from a constriction of blood flow to organs in the upper abdomen, which causes chronic abdominal pain and other significant complications. People suffering from malice can encounter difficulties with diagnosis due to the lack of awareness on the part of providers, which is why Osmosis was pleased to work with the National Malice Foundation to create an educational video. Suzanne is a certified massage therapist who became involved with malice due to her son's experience. Suzanne, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So just to get started, maybe you can tell me a little bit about how you personally got interested in massage therapy and being part of the health community. So I got interested in massage therapy, kind of, I wanted something that was relaxing for myself, but also that would, had a slower pace and set the tone for healing, not just the body, but the mind and that energy of a calming environment. And so you did that, you have been doing that for years, and then you learned of Mal's through your son and, and his journey. Do you mind just kind of telling me about what that was like and how that all began? Sure. So I would say it was my youngest son's birthday that, uh, you know, everybody was joking around. And he woke me in the middle of the night saying he thought he was having a heart attack. And I checked him out. And after realizing he was tachycardic, called an ambulance. And then he was admitted for three days due to elevated troponin. You know, that was the start of it. And he was admitted then. And then there was in and out of the hospital ER a few times that month. And so it took us six months to get diagnosed. So that was our experience. And then another seven until he had surgery. How old was he when he first woke you up with that complaint of feeling like he had a heart attack? So he was a month shy of his 21st birthday. He's a 20-year-old young man, and he comes in with this complaint. Walk me through kind of those six months, if, if you don't mind. Just like, what were people telling you? What was he hearing? What was your biggest concern, his biggest concern? Anything that you can share to help us kind of imagine what that experience must have been like for you? You know, when he first woke me up, I said, are, you know, are you sure you're not a little anxious? And he said, no, no. So I got up and we went downstairs and his heart was pounding really fast and, and hard. And so he was clammy. I couldn't get a blood pulse quite. It was really erratic. And so when I called an ambulance, I mean, his blood pressure was like 190 over 95. So they took it pretty seriously. And with the elevated troponin, we were told we think he might have heart damage. And then later after being assessed by the cardiologist, they diagnosed him with pericarditis. And so he was treated for that. But then the next week, he was still complaining. And I took him back to the ER and had a different cardiologist. So he was already getting worked up, EKG, blood work, stress test. And so after that second visit, the cardiologist said, you know, I think this might be GI related. I mean, he was having GI issues, but the predominant symptom was the chest, the pressure, chest pain. And I never heard anybody burp so much. <laughs> I mean, I've been around, you know, worked in a nursing home, been around a lot of people and never heard that. So he did have an EGD and he was diagnosed then with mild gastritis. And then he started having the anxiety attacks. 
And so it was, and I did say, being a massage therapist, you look at mus musculoskeletal, right? And so I'm looking, I'm taking a history, I'm assessing him every day. And I said to the GI doctor, are you sure this isn't some sort of compression coming from the diaphragm? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I was told zero chance. And it was because he had a CT and it was read in the report as not having median arcuate ligament syndrome. So that was mentioned. I didn't know it was mentioned. So then that night we came home and went back to the ER because he mm -hmm. kept saying, mom, you got to take me back. And he had uh, elevated liver enzymes then at that point. And so they kept him and admitted him another three days. So then it was after that, that he was in and out of the doctor's offices and had the whole GI workup. He did have elevated bilirubin. So they thought maybe he, we have Gilbert syndrome. And it wasn't until I asked for a consult because I thought, okay, my refrigerator is starting to look like the end aisle of a pharmacy, which I know how, you know, being in hospice as a vigil volunteer, I know I've seen that before. And I asked for a consult and then the GI doctor, his GI doctor, I mean, he was really trying. He was really trying to figure out what was going on. And I kept saying, something's not right. And then he said, well, there's this one last test, a mesenteric duplex ultrasound. And then sure enough, that's when they saw the elevated velocities. And then he did go back with another radiologist and looked at the CT, which showed the compression, as well as then later he had a CTA. He saw infectious disease. It wasn't like we weren't trying to figure out what was going on, but, but then we did go to and saw a vascular surgeon. And then it was after that, actually, I called the president of the vascular society and he gave a recommendation for him to go to Chicago with Dr. Skelly, because that is, they had a mouse program. You're obviously an incredible advocate here, and you're speaking to leaders in the field and making sure that your son gets the care that he deserves and needs. That doesn't always happen because sometimes people feel uncomfortable or they don't know what to do or what they can do. Do you mind just talking a little bit about, like, how did you even know to do that? How did you know to, to reach out to these folks and get the recommendations to speak to the world leaders on these very rare conditions? So I worked at the hospital the one that he was admitted to. I'm a volunteer, still a volunteer there. And I understand the process. And being a massage therapist also, I have lots of medical books on my bookshelves here. So it wasn't difficult for me knowing the different departments because I worked in hospital patient access and I did go to the ED to admit people. So I'm familiar with that. And I also know that, so I was in the Air Force, I know if I want to get the correct information and maybe the person that is the most knowledgeable, maybe, or one of the people that's the most knowledgeable, knowing that Mal's was vascular, well, who should I contact would be the, maybe the person that's the president of the society, right? Totally logical. And it makes sense given your experience that you're working at that facility at the hospital. Do you have any insights on why, generally speaking, getting properly diagnosed can be such a struggle? And, and in this case, you know, obviously months went by before you got that key finding on that study. What are some things, as you look back on that period of time, they think, gosh, if we had done X, Y, or Z, it could have potentially gotten us a result quicker. 
uh, if anything? I don't know since it was the initial suggesting, are you sure this isn't a compression coming from the diaphragm? I would say that the reason it's difficult is because you have the symptoms that people present with and they vary because the compression is from the diaphragm, you know, the ligament cruise could be some of the lymph involved there. So if you look in an anatomy book, you can see all the different organs and, and things that are taking place, vessels, nerves. Part of that is the symptoms and having similar symptoms with other conditions that present the same way, you know, yeah. gastritis, issues with the gallbladder. Some people have slow motility. So it really is involved. What's involved with the compression, what's getting compressed. And so it's important to get worked up actually for somebody like my son. And the reason I thought diaphragm compression is because he had the left shoulder pain that radiated down the left arm and axillary lymph node swelling. So diaphragm radiates, refers to the left shoulder or right shoulder. And so that was kind of a giveaway for me. But for other people, you really need to get the work up because you want to make sure you're not, is it something else that's more functional versus structural? That makes perfect sense. And so maybe that gets into education. You know, there are things that you knew based on your background and understanding of physiology that helped you here, kind of gave you the clues. Do you mind just telling me a little bit about the aim of the National Malice Foundation? Like, why did you set out to kind of create this community and grow this community? And what do you hope to achieve? So the reason really is, is there was, when my son got diagnosed and had surgery, I didn't, wasn't looking for support or wasn't looking to see who else had it. I was just trying to get him from point A to point B and have surgery and then deal with, you know, any residuals or anything like that in a holistic way. So it was when I got involved with the private support group on Facebook, Mouse Pals, that I observed at that point, there was hundreds of people and the severity of what happens with having delays in getting a diagnosis and listening to the stories, reading the stories and the difficulties people were having and not maybe the knowledge that I had, right? Having that knowledge. And to me, 13 months is still long, right? To go from start of symptoms to surgery. So the reason for doing is awareness. You know, the reason I contacted osmosis and SHIV even before starting the foundation was who can I spread awareness to that will have the largest impact, you know, future physicians, future nurses. And so that was one of the reasons, because if a doctor, if you're not trained, if it's not taught in school, well, then how are you going to recognize it and then acknowledge it and validate it for the person and their family? So the struggles, what I saw was the challenges and the struggles were alarming to me because then you have more complexities, you have more conditions that can result from it. And so that awareness, education, advocacy to advocate for more of awareness because I'm pretty sure I don't believe it's taught in medical school. And I have looked in medical books. Yeah, it's generally not taught in medical schools. Each medical school has a different curriculum, so I can't speak for all, of course. But generally speaking, that's not taught. And what ought to be taught is kind of a thoughtfulness to how to solve a problem that isn't resolving through 
investigations that are looking at the common things, like you mentioned at the outset, you know, gastritis or, you know, other common ailments like costochondritis or something like that, where if those things are not checking out, like, what do you do next? And, and I think that diagnostic approach is what ought to be taught. Do you feel now that some time has passed, years have passed, do you feel that you have seen any shift in the general knowledge and awareness among clinicians about MALS? Or do you feel like there's still kind of the same level of understanding that you saw at the very beginning of this journey? I think there's more awareness for it, but there's still, even to this day, any articles that are usually written about it, case studies, talks about being debated, that there's still some believe in it, some don't. The blood flow issue or with the nerves, is it nerve? Is it neurogenic? Is it where the symptoms are coming from? So I've read hundreds and hundreds of articles and it's really individualized. It's what's getting compressed. You know, where are the symptoms coming from? So can it be blood flow? Sure. Can it be nerves? Sure. Can it be both? Yes. And so it's not putting that rigidity and thinking that it's got to be one or the other or that sort of thing. So I think there's still that difficulty of keeping an open mind that it's very individual case specifics of the person. And we have from three years old to 80s in the literature, it talks 20 to 40, 30 to 50, and that's just not the case. So it's also on the treating physicians, surgeons, it's who is in that demographic for the people that they see and then they write about it. And instead of having a broad, like in the support group now, there's over 6,000 members. Like how do most of these 6,000 members find you guys? Like what's the most common, clearly it's not one story, it's many different stories, but like what is a common story that you do hear among how people come and find your foundation? Some of it's just people searching on Facebook. Some of it's word of mouth. Some of it is through physicians, maybe the GI doctor, GI doctor is aware, or I know personally, my son's primary care, I gave her a business card. And, you know, a few months after that, she had somebody who presented with symptoms and then she sent them for a referral. So that's how it starts, you know, with people finding out more and other people who have mouths posting on their, you know, whatever, social media account, Twitter, Instagram, doctors publishing, the surgeons publishing, that's needed. Certainly the societies, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what are they doing within their society to educate? That's what I want to see. And collaboration with other colleagues and specialties. You very insightfully kind of spoke to the fact that future physicians need to learn about this. And that's why you reached out to Shiv and Osmosis about our interest here. I'm curious, have you heard from other organizations, other groups that may not be ones that we would necessarily think of, but might have equally kind of a huge role to play in making sure that patients with MALS get diagnosed and treated appropriately, including international ones as well? So NORD, the National Organization for Rare Disorders, so we are registered with them and our information is on their website. So that's one. And then the NIH has their guard, their division for rare diseases. And so we are registered on there as well. So those are the main two. Plus the one thing about the mouse population, what we see is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So people have a connective tissue disorder. We see that quite a bit mast cell activation, or they might have other compressions like nutcracker, 
May Turner, SMAS. So including that in the discussion as well. Do you have any thoughts on COVID? You know, how has COVID affected the MALS community in any particular way? I'm just curious if it's affected research, ability to access care, diagnosis, anything along those lines. Yeah, sure. Diagnosis. You know, everything was shut down for a while. And then there's delays because a lot of people are going to larger tertiary hospital systems for getting diagnosed and then surgeries. So of course, even in interventional pain management, we were closed for two months. So there are significant delays and I'm sure Mm -hmm. for a lot of other people too, but definitely for mouths, we saw it, you know, people were desperate, hurting, scared. So in this age, it takes months to get into specialists sometimes. Mm -hmm. So that just created a longer waiting period and then to get to surgery yet. And some of these people have had the condition for, you know, five years, 10 years longer because it was misdiagnosed. We have a lot of students and future healthcare professionals in our audience. What are your thoughts in terms of like how they should be thinking about MALS and other rare disorders as they start to head out into their own clinical practice? What advice might you share with them? I think to keep an open mind. It's not always the common. It's not always what you think it is. And part of that is functional versus structural, structural, functional. So, you know, what feeds the digestive system? You know, what are the signals? So it's, I think, just keep looking, you know, be that Sherlock Holmes, be that person that tries to find out the reason why someone isn't feeling well, right? And instead of putting up the walls and there's always something, even if you yourself don't know, can always contact somebody else, collaborate, reach out, and just keep searching, right? Because oftentimes the person that's coming, you're coming in to the room. What is the presence you're bringing in there? Someone who's inquisitive, wanting to know that sort of thing and that energy and that relationship that you're going to have with that person to help them because that's what they're there for. They're looking for guidance. They're looking for help. That makes a lot of sense. I think that open-mindedness and humility is critical, as you said. So that's probably very valid and, and also not really dependent on this particular time, but really at any time that a person is seeing a patient, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, the other thing I just want to say is when a person comes into the hospital or doctor's office, right, they don't have maybe the same knowledge that a person in medical school or residency has with the system. And how can you, knowing the system, make it a smoother process for them. Yeah, totally makes sense. And making sure that they are on equal footing and have all the knowledge and and resources available and to do it quickly and efficiently and kindly and all those other things as well. Listen, this has been phenomenal and understanding your story about your son, a very poignant story and sharing that with us was very thoughtful of you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. 
You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.